lot of back and forth today. <sighs> how are we this morning? How are we this morning? It's the new year. If this is how we're starting, whew, we're in trouble with how we're going to end. When we, as Christians, pray, I feel an echo. When we, as Christians, pray, what, what does it kind of look like to you? Like, as you, if you, as a Christian, whether you're at home or you're in a group of people, perhaps before a Bible study or a session meeting or a committee meeting or, you know, worship team or whatever context you find yourself in, and we, we say, let's take some time and, and pray. Or you're at home and you, you spend some time in the morning or evening or whenever it is that you decide to pray. What does it actually sound like? And what are the things that you decide to pray for? Right? Think of... Think of that prayer life. Usually, you know, we start, you know, dear Lord, I'll thank you for something. We do the acts model, right? Adoration, confession, and all that good stuff. And then we, we get to the point where we ask for things, right? We're usually asking for stuff in our prayer. And, and it's funny because when we think of what do we ask for in our prayer, what are some of the things that come up? Actually, shout them out. What do we ask for, generally? Health. Health. Safety. Safety. Promotion? What else? Wisdom. wisdom. Yeah, there's, there's a godly one. Wisdom, right? Success. Solutions. Solutions, right? Understanding, all those things. Here's statistically in a poll that was done by Barner Research just a few years ago. Here's the top things. Health, safety, jobs, success. And then if you're parents, you pray for your kids. And if you pray for your kids, it's the same things. You want them to be healthy successful, safe, right, and all those good things. Those are what we pray for, right? Most of the time, I pray that my children just stay alive, right? But, but we pray for those things. That's, that's kind of how prayer sounds. Usually when we gather, we say, what can we pray for? So-and-so is sick and in the hospital. We pray for healing. So-and-so lost a job. We're praying for gainful employment. So-and-so is really struggling. So we pray for peace and all those kinds of things. And those are good things in no way. If you walk away today saying we shouldn't pray for that, you've heard me wrong. Those are all great things to pray for. And we should pray for those things. But one of the things that, that I noticed is if you read through Scripture, you know, there's, there's thousands of prayers in Scripture. But one of the things we really don't see that often are prayers for health, safety, jobs, our kids, and all those things that we tend to default to. Right? The prayers of Scripture, when, when people like the disciples or folks in the Old Testament fall on their face and they begin to pray to God, it sounds different. As a matter of fact, how many of you, be honest, when you read prayers of the Bible, it starts to make you wonder whether you can pray out loud and be confident in it. Right? Like You kind of go, I can't pray like that. Right? Most of the biblical prayers sound a little bit eloquent, don't they? It makes you kind of feel self-conscious. How many of you have ever been in a circle and just prayed, please don't make me pray out loud? <laughs> right? right? I, always, I, love, I love when you're in a circle of people praying and you go, all right, I'm going to open and then anybody goes and then we'll close at the end. Someone will volunteer to close and then, you know, I'll open and then it'll be silent. And you can tell there's like seven people in the circle. Five of them prayed and the seventh person is going, please, number six, don't pray. Because then it means I'm the only one who doesn't. Right? Like, Right? Like how many of you have had, oh, come on, be honest, right? you've had that thought, you're like, I just, I don't know what to say, or while the other people are praying, you don't hear anything you're saying, because you're trying to think in your head, what am I going to say? I'm going to, okay, okay, I'll pray for, I'll pray for Aunt Sue, and then I'll pray, oh, I'll pray for wisdom, because that's a good biblical one, 
right? I'll throw that one out. And, and like, by the time it gets to you, you have no idea what actually is going on in the lives of people because you're just trying to not look silly, right? I, I get the chuckles, which tells me that, like, all of you have been down that road at some point. Our prayers look different in Scripture than they do when they come out of our mouths, and there's a bit of a disconnect. And so with the new year this morning, uh, we're, we're going to focus in 2023 as, as a church on prayer quite a bit. We're going to spend some time on it. Our elders are going to be reading some, some stuff about prayer and, and studying that in a deeper way and kind of growing in prayer life as we pray for our congregation and then model that for the rest of the body, right? So that's something that's going to be happening throughout the year, beginning in, in January and February. And so as a church, we're going to have a focus on that. We're going to have some, some books that come across your radar over the course of this year, some studies that you can participate in that will help you develop and grow in your prayer life. But this morning, I want to look at one specific prayer that we see in Scripture that I think can really help us. And it's the prayer that Paul offers to the church, to the Colossian church, in the very opening of his book, in Colossians 1, chapter, or chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. Right? The first eight verses are just an introduction kind of segment, and then he launches into this, this beautiful prayer that I think in many ways models for us what it was like, what we can be like when we pray for ourselves, for our church, for our people for the impact we have, for the way that we grow closer to God. And I think we could learn something from it that helps us model our own prayer life and patterns as we go into the new year. And so I, I call it the New Year Prayer, right? Not because Paul prayed for it on January 1st, but just because it's a good kind of, if you're going to have a resolution to be more involved and bathed in prayer this year, it might be a really good one to read to help you kind of focus on that. So the, the church in, in Colossae was a very young church. Um, it wasn't one that was founded by Paul, but Paul, as obviously kind of the chief missionary of the Christian church, had a vested interest in the church, whether he founded it or not. And so he has a love for them, and he writes them a letter because, as we'll see, they, they've got some false teaching that they're wrestling with. And because they're young and small, they're kind of very susceptible to this teaching. And so Paul writes the letter to the Colossians as an encouragement for them in a way to kind of, how do I get over this stuff that's being bombarded at me as a church? And how can we press on in the midst of the falseness that's coming, right? That's his aim and goal in the book. And so he opens after some greeting words with this beautiful prayer that we'll dissect together this morning. And it'll be short. We won't be here very long. Uh, and then we'll see what we can learn from it. So if we could stand, if you're new, we stand when we read the main passage, the Word of God, because my words are rambly and can take 45 minutes. Uh, his words are holy, and every word is concise and planned and matters. Right? So here we go. Uh, Colossians chapter, nine, or chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's the word of the Lord. 
have a seat. So Paul's, Paul's prayer kind of breaks into two sections, very uneven sections. The first verse, the first nine, is section one, and the rest of it, 10 through 14, is section two. And he's dealing with knowledge and conduct, right? So the first verse nine is about knowledge, about what's in our head, and then the rest of it is about the conduct, what we do with our lips and with our hands as a result of the knowledge that's in our head. And so, obviously, Paul is, is praying progressively in nature here, right? For him, knowledge kind of naturally leads to conduct. His, his belief is that as we understand and accept things intrinsically, that naturally will change how we live, right? That's, by the way, whenever you hear James talk about faith and deeds, right, that's what he means, right? He's not saying that our, our deeds save us, but he's saying that if your faith is genuine, if you actually believe what you know about Jesus Christ well, then it naturally would have to affect your works, what you do. Right? Otherwise, do you really know? Right? So James's argument is you can't know and not act on it somehow. If you really buy into what Jesus says, it naturally is going to shape how you act and think and talk and, and go out and about into the world and what you do with your resources. And so for Paul, knowledge naturally leads to a change in conduct. The more we know God and understand God, the more it shapes naturally how we conduct ourselves, right? That's just basic math to Paul. And we'll talk about why that matters in this passage to the Colossian church specifically as we get a little bit further. But let's walk through this prayer together. Paul prays for knowledge, right? The, the Colossian church, we don't know exactly what false teaching they were kind of suffering under, but we know that it was Gnostic in nature. And if you've never heard Gnosticism before, we've talked about it a little bit here and there. One of the hallmarks of, of Gnosticism is that it, we, we go beyond what we can see and beyond what's plain. Right? Gnosticism kind of liked to live in the, the realm of the secret things, the coded languages. Right? A, a Gnostic person would love, not just for entertainment, but for actual like, consumption, things like the Da Vinci Code. Right? Because it's, just, it's never what it seems. There's always hidden more somewhere underneath there. And so that's what the Gnostics were, were teaching in the church in Colossae. They were starting to say, well, there's, you have this Jesus, but there's hidden meanings, and you have to understand how things work, and you have to get into our practices and our codes and our ciphers and all these things, and you, know, you have to do the math, and if you add 666 and all those kinds of things. Those are very Gnostic types of ways of thinking. And so there was always being thrown on the church, on the Colossian church, this idea of there is way more to know that you just don't know. There's more out there. And, and we have the keys. So come and get the keys. Right? And so Paul, in the midst of this, comes in and talks about knowledge. And he says simply this. So from the day we heard, we haven't ceased to pray, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And the word knowledge is significant, as, as Paul uses it here, because knowledge in, in Greek is just gnosis, right? And most places we hear the word knowledge in Scripture, it's gnosis. But for, for, for Paul here, he uses the word epignosis. You almost put a C in there and say epignosis, right? So Paul, when he says knowledge, he's not just saying, I pray that you grow in knowledge, but he's saying, I pray that you grow in the fullness of knowledge, in other words, I, I want you to submit to the Lord because in him, you have all knowledge done, signed, sealed, delivered. There isn't extra. 
There isn't some cipher. There isn't some code. There isn't some thing you have to unearth that will allow you to then understand the things that were previously mysteriously hidden to you. Jesus came in order to reveal so that we might know. And everything you need to know to follow Christ and to be part of the church triumphant is given to you plainly in Scripture and through the testimony and witness of Jesus Christ's life on earth. He's saying, look, I just pray that you would be satisfied in the full knowledge of all the things that God has for you and that that would be enough and that you would stop buying this lie that there is always more and deeper and greater. Now, doesn't that mean that we don't grow an understanding of Scripture over time? Well, no, of course not. You're going to understand God's Word more 10 years from now than you do today, right? Certainly. But there isn't some hiddenness, some thing that you can't uncipher because you don't yet know, right? That, that mystery kind of language Paul wants to remove. And so his first prayer is just that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and that out of that would come What? Spiritual wisdom and understanding. A supernatural wisdom and understanding. So he prays for the people of the Colossian church to just to know, to have all the knowledge they could possibly desire in God so that they might have wisdom and understanding. So that's number one. He prays for knowledge. How many times have we sat in church and just say, you know, we pray that we just might know better. Lord, show us, show us all the things that you want us to know this year. So that we can then effectively change our conduct as a result, right? There's so many ways that we don't know what God wants from us, right? How many of you know exactly what God wants to do in this church this year, in 2023? Right? Well, we pray for things like health and healing and jobs, and those are great. But how, many, how much time do we spend at home just praying that the Lord would fill this church with the knowledge and understanding and wisdom of the Lord so that we would know how to move forward as a body of people and shape the community that we're in and how we're supposed to do that and where we're both supposed to do that. Right? There's dozens and dozens of churches in this area. What's our unique fit? How, does, how is the Lord calling us to serve and be faithful and, and be a part of his kingdom? What puzzle piece are we supposed to fill? Right? Without which the puzzle looks silly because it's unfinished. How many times do we stop and pray for those kind of bigger things? Rather than just the list of all the people, which is good, remember. Right? So that's the first. His prayer is that they will be filled with epignosis. That's a word you can take home. Right? Epignosis. If, you, if your family ever says, I know, you can be like, well, I epignose. And go, and go forward. So after that, the remainder of his address is about conduct and, and the posture that we have when we go forth. And so the relationship of knowledge and behavior might seem obvious to us, but again, to the Colossian church, it's not. Because here's another Gnosticism theology kind of piece. Gnostics believe in a very firm disconnect between mind and body. Right? The mind and the spirit is, is superior and desired. The body and what it does is kind of ugly and, and just the uh, aside. And so one of the outpourings of that in Gnosticism is that Gnostics in this time, and even some that still exist today, they believe that what we do with our bodies doesn't really matter. It's all about what we think. Right? We think the right things. Right? How does that work in real life when you're at work and you have a project deadline? I thought about exactly how I would complete that project. Well, did you do it? Well, no, but like I thought about it. 
<laughs> You'd be fired, right? But in Gnosticism, that's how it worked. And so you could do with your body whatever you wanted. Just seek earthly pleasures and whatever, as long as your mind was fixated on the higher things. Right? And so Paul talks a lot about conduct and praise for their conduct because he wants them to understand that that's not how the gospel works. That's not how God's kingdom works. In God's kingdom, there is a connection between thinking and doing. And if your doing doesn't match your thinking, we call that a hypocrite, right? You say and you think one thing, but you do another. Right? Hip hypocrisy doesn't really exist in Gnosticism because you think the higher things and then you just do what feels good. You just YOLO your way through life. Right? But, but Paul is trying to say, no, this is different in the church that you are a part of. God calls you to actually change your conduct to the way that you think and know. And as you grow in your knowledge and understanding of God and his ways, we pray that your conduct might be shaped. And so he points to a couple things. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that one makes sense, we don't have to dissect that, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. So he prays for them to walk in a manner that is worthy of God. He prays for them to live a life that is pleasing to him. He prays for them to bear fruit in all of their work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So here's actually interesting. Paul believes not just that knowledge breeds conduct, but that conduct breeds more knowledge. The relationship between the two is cyclical. As we obey more and we press more into what God wants us to do, our knowledge actually increases. And when our knowledge increases, so does our conduct. And then so does our knowledge. And that's what we call sanctification. Right? We continue to grow and more and more in doing and thinking in the Lord. And so he sees that connection there. And then he says this in 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. The word endurance here, the way it's written linguistically, is geared towards circumstance. And the word patience, the way it's written, is geared towards people. So Paul's prayer to the people in the Colossian church is that they would increase in endurance in terms of all the circumstances that they suffer through. Right? All the things of life that hit whether it be health or persecution or false teaching and trying to combat it or trying to live out this, all the things that are situational things, he prays for endurance. But then he asks for patience when it comes to people. And not just any patience. Patience with what? Joy. Joyful patience. I don't know about you. There are people for which the last thing I have is any patience, let alone joyful patience. That's a hard thing. So he asks and prays that the Lord would give them a patience with people that, that they struggle to have patience with that isn't just patient, but joyfully so, so that when people rub them the wrong way or get on their nerves or belittle them or are nasty to them, that their reply would be a joyful patience. I don't know about you, that's something we need to pray for, because most of us, including myself, we don't have that. I, might, I have patience with people, but it's not joyful, right? I might have a patience with you, and then I get in the car, and I go, <laughs> right? I don't get in the car and go, ha, oh, that was such a joy to be patient. 
Thank you, Lord, for affording me the opportunity to just live that patience out. But Paul prays for those two things for a very specific reason. He prays for endurance because enduring hardships is a witness to the glory of God. When we endure hardship well, and we, we struggle well, and we, we have faith in the midst of it, and we have a, a way and a composure about us that despite all the mess in life, we carry ourselves in a way that understands that God's in control and in charge, right? When we have that endurance, when the Lord gives it to us, that is a demonstration of the glory of God and the sovereignty, right? We say, I, whatever the world hits, God's in charge. I can endure because he has me. So it's a witness to the world around us when we endure in terms of earthly trials and tribulations, right? It's a demonstration of God's grace when we offer joyful patience. When the world sees you, be patient in a joyful way towards those who no one should in their right mind be patient towards. It is the best demonstration microcosm, little mini picture of the grace of God that you can offer. Because people will look at you and go, how on earth can you just deal with that guy? Or how, how, do, you, how do you struggle? How do you not like whack that family member on the head? How are they still invited to Thanksgiving every year? They stink. And you go, because, because the Lord is gracious. Because none of us deserve to sit at that table and neither does he, but we have a joyful patience that doesn't run out because the Lord keeps filling our cup. And he's the one who gives us our identity and our hope and our joy. And, and no one can take that away. And when we do that, it's, it's a picture of grace to the world around us. And so Paul is praying that their endurance and their joyful patience would serve as a cloud, as a witness to the whole area that the Colossian church is surrounded by. That people would come to understand from them the way God's kingdom is supposed to work. When we demonstrate endurance in life and patience with people, the world will take notice because no one else is doing it. It's the easiest way to be missional in the world in which we live in. Just do things backwards. When everybody else is bickering, <clears throat> don't bicker. When everybody else is whining and can't endure, remember that God is good, that he'll carry you through and demonstrate what faithful endurance looks like. I guarantee you, if you are patient with people that don't deserve it, someone around you eventually is going to take notice and ask you about why the heck you do that. And what do you do? Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have, right? You start to talk about why. Why can I be patient and joyful when no one else seems to be able to? Because I serve the Lord and I know who my, where my identity is. I know where my status is. I'm comfortable in it. I don't need anything from this person. I can just simply love them as God would love them and demonstrate through that the witness to the world how gracious God is. Wow, you offer grace to that person. Yeah, I know. It's because I'm offered grace myself. Let me tell you about it. Such an easy witness. And so Paul, after that, prays for a mindset of thankfulness. This is one of the hallmarks of prayer life, and it should be for us. 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. So why should we be thankful, right? Because we have been what? Qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. One commentator wrote this. He said, we cannot walk worthy of God without constantly giving joyous thanks. It doesn't make sense. Because every time we walk in the Lord and the goodness that he provides, we don't deserve it. The natural inclination should be gratitude. Right? All week long last week, what are we teaching our kids when they open presents? Thank you, Grandma. Thank you, 
Aunt Beth, thank you, Oma, right? All of these thank yous. We teach gratitude, but yet we neglect it a lot. We have so much to be thankful for to the Lord. And so Paul prays that they would have a heart of gratefulness, of thanks. And then why should we give this thanks? He qualifies it at the very end. Because we have this inheritance and because he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son. Because we have an inheritance, because we have been transferred to a new kingdom, because we have redemption, and because we have our sins forgiven. I don't care how in the tank you feel like your life is today. You have reasons to be thankful this morning. To have gracious gratitude towards the Lord. You do. Right? And so this morning, finally, Paul just qualifies all of that so that we no longer walk in darkness and that we live in this kingdom of his beloved son and that we have this redemption and this beautiful, beautiful forgiveness of sins. And so his prayer for the church is a beautiful template for how we are supposed to pray for one another. It doesn't mean that we don't bring our requests to God as well, right? Prayer has a lot of facets, but it does mean that our prayer life for SPC and one another should be evolving and growing as we move into the new year. It should include fervent pleas for spiritual growth and for development of ourselves as a church. And Paul gives us this blueprint. So this morning, as we enter the new year, I want to just end today by praying for us as a church the way that Paul might do. And this is, this is something that you can do. Right? When you want to learn how to pray, you just look at the, the prayers in Scripture and you pattern and personalize your prayer after their prayer. And so I want to end this time just praying over us. I would encourage each of us to adopt this posture of prayer in our lives this year as we move into 2023. And so let Paul be a guide to us. And let's spend, as we close, just some time in prayer together. Let's close our eyes. Father, I give you joyful thanks on this holy Lord's day. I thank you for your mercies, which are new every morning. I thank you for the blessing of your presence and love. And I never, ever cease to thank you for the people of Stowe Presbyterian Church. I pray that each and every one of us might be filled today with the knowledge of your will. Help us to know your desire for this church so that we might increase in wisdom and in understanding. Help us to know your will so that we might walk in the fullness of your presence and in a way worthy of you. Lord, we pray that our thinking, our leadership, our actions as a church would shift so that we might be entirely pleasing to you in order that we can bear fruit in all of our work for your kingdom. We ask that you might grant us endurance. Endurance to keep pressing on in this world with all of its hatred and wickedness and disease. And we ask that through your spirit, we ask for joyful patience. There are so many around us who are difficult to love. People who wrong us. People who have different political views. People who are against you and your word. People that simply wear out our frail human patience because of our own sins. So help us to joyfully, patiently love them so that they might experience just a glorious taste of your grace, that we might see you and they might see you too. Lord, we're grateful for the gift of life. We're grateful for the inheritance that we claim in the name of Jesus. And we're grateful for the redemption that he purchased for us and the forgiveness of sins that he offers to us. 
We offer ourselves as a church and as individuals wholly to you. Take us, mold us, use us, restore and renew us. And it's in the precious, holy name of Jesus that we all pray.